This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is daniel finkelstein i'm sitting in for matt jawley and this is the times red box politics podcast well, today we spoke to Tom Chivers and Jamie Suskin, two of the leading authors in the area, about the future of algorithms and big data in politics and public affairs. Data is everywhere. It's the currency we use when we fill in forms online or sign up to free apps. It's the long list of everything we've ever spent any money on. And it's increasingly being used to shape politics and change policy. The government, of course, got into some serious trouble last week using an algorithm to determine teenagers' school results. The outrage resulted in lots of harrowing stories of personal unfairness the inevitable policy reversal, and for the first time, we're all discussing publicly the usefulness of algorithm. But how much is data being used to drive policy behind the scenes? I'm joined by two people who know a lot about it. Tom Chivers, the journalist and author of The AI Does Not Hate You, and Jamie Suskin, barrister and author of Future Politics. Hello, both of you. Hello. Jamie, let me start with this. When we're talking about the future of politics being data and algorithms, as you do in your book, what do we mean by that? It means that an important, uh, forgive me, it means that an increasing number of the important decisions about people's lives, uh, whether they get welfare payments, the kinds of exam results they get, the kinds of policing they're subject to, whether they have access to credit and mortgages, whether they have access to jobs and housing, an increasing number of these kinds of decisions are delegated to or at least made in conjunction with non-human systems, uh, non-human systems which process large amounts of data and make predictions about people's risk levels, people's future behaviour, people's likely conduct. And public policy decisions are increasingly taken on the basis of those predictions, sometimes with a human in the loop, sometimes without a human in the loop. Tom, how far are we down this road already? What sort of data are we talking about that is being, and how much is it being used in politics? Well, it's not about everything. Um, the A level algorithm is used in schools. Uh, we are talking about uh, data used in housing. Neil O'Brien, Conservative MP, is writing this morning, I think, about uh, the dangers of uh, the, the next algorithm problem looking at housing, which will be talking about de- density of housing and affordability. There'll be algorithms looking at voting records at um, you know, polling data, economic forecasts are an al- just an algorithm using economic data. It is, I mean, 
We are talking about everything. And you've got to remember that an algorithm is really just any set of repeatable instructions. So an algorithm could be as simple as something that's finding whether a number is prime by dividing it by all numbers between two and that number. Or it could be something incredibly complicated like GPT-3, you know, the open AI algorithm, which can um, uh, churn out pretty impressive sort of fiction and, and poetry and things. We're talking about this incredibly broad area and we're also sort of this, this, the, the, these this is not this is not a new this is not a new problem this is not a new situation because uh, these everything like the, the Barnet formula for instance that went that, that divides uh, cash between England and Scotland and Wales is a simple algorithm that divides that up and all all, all decisions in the end are going to have have been uh, sorry I've lost my thread a bit there um, the uh, so uh, Sorry, I Tom, just fine, fine. <laughs> just, to, just to follow up, Tom. So, are yeah. you arguing? Uh, because I think you know you've written about this mm. a little bit that that, yeah. that, that, that modelling is successful, mm. important uh, work that can shape government policy, or are you arguing actually it's an it's a it's a discipline that's in its infancy and can't really um, do the job that and put sort of take all the pressure we're putting on it? Okay, I'm I'm arguing, and I would say that. Uh, Algorithmic decisions are no different from normal hum from human decisions. Human decisions are biased. Algorithms are biased. Uh, algorithms are imperfect. Humans are imperfect. The um, uh, fundamental difference is that, uh, you, when, that when you use an algorithm to make a decision, it will reliably churn out a specific uh, output given the data that you give it. So it, it, to, to some degree, it is better than humans in so far as the um, it, it, you know it can be it is reliable it is predictable if you if you want to um, uh, assess um, education policy or something like that you then you can you can use these so use an algorithm and it will churn, churn out the same results after and over over and over again the trouble is that uh, the quite often the things you ask the AI to churn out are not exactly what you exactly what you actually are looking for for instance if you use um, uh, an algorithm to uh, assess which schools are doing well on the basis of five A stars to, to A stars to, G, uh, to C, that will that is a that will that will reliably give you a result of what schools are doing best on that metric. But actually, you care about much broader, more deeper things about the quality of education, about the um, uh, sort of the outcomes of the school, the outcomes for the children in the schools, rather than just this narrow sort of specific thing about the five A stars to GCSE. And uh, so. While algorithms can be really effective at providing these things, they have to be given a um, certain amount of human oversight to, so we don't lose sight of the deeper, more complicated, sort of hard-to-define issues. And the, we have to remember that any algorithm only gives you a, gives you a sort of proxy, which can be, less, you know, be better or worse in terms of measuring that real outcome. Jamie, it struck me when I was looking at the A-levels that... Um on the one hand, you had a system that was in some ways fair. You could argue that uh, making sure that you didn't have inflationary grades was fair to future and past generations. On the other hand, people were opening their A-level results, looking at the result and thinking, uh, someone else has just failed my A-levels for me. In other words, they weren't really prepared to accept the result because it wasn't their result. It was produced by some sort of computer system. Uh, and so... Um, let me ask first this. Do you, do you think algorithms will make life fairer because they reduce the role of human idiosyncrasies and prejudice so the overall system is fairer? Or do you think they'll make it less fair, partly because they're speeding up idiosyncrasies and prejudice and partly because people won't feel that they achieved something. They'll feel it was allocated to them by some sort of formula. 
Well, Danny, the the problem with the A-level algorithm is a problem that you see with a lot of algorithms. And I've been trying to put my finger on exactly why it seems so unfair. And I think there are two big reasons. The first is I think that in this country, at least, we have a precept that every person counts. So if you apply for a job and you're over 60 and you're applying for a job as a pilot, it may well be that most or, or even more people over 60 have slower reaction rates than people under 60. But you would expect as a candidate, as an individual candidate, to be tested on your reflexes, on your CV, on your experiences. And the idea here is that every person counts. It may be that lots of people like you would have got that particular A-level result. But it may also be the case that you would have bucked the trend because you're an individual. And if you care about the the dignity of the individual, you shouldn't treat them as a data point. The second problem, the kind of moral issue I think that we have with this is that What algorithms inevitably do is that they make determinations and predictions about the future based on the past. And of course, they have no choice but to do that because the only data we have is from the past. There's no data from the future. But we also have this deep belief in our culture, I think, that people are capable of change. So it may well be, for instance, that someone like me, for instance, who didn't do that well in many of my exams in secondary school in the years leading up to my public exams, but I managed to, with the encouragement of my teachers, turn the corner and perform better than my average when it came, when it came to, the, to, the, to the GCSEs and the A-levels that I eventually sat. We believe that people, people are capable of change. That's also why we take parole decisions based not, or, or rather we should take parole decisions based not on what people have done in the past, but rather what they look like they might be able to do in the future. But if you only make predictions about the future based on what's happened in the past, then in a sense you shackle people to the past. And it defies the kind of conception that we have of free will and the capability of change. And I think any A-level student this year will have just wanted to be treated as an individual and they will have wanted not to be tied to the past and rather be seen as free to forge their own agency. If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Now, in answer to your question, Danny, about whether algorithms are going to make the world more or less fair, 
This is certainly an ideology that came out of Silicon Valley for a long time. The idea that really the problem in the world was that from the crooked timbers of humanity, nothing straight could ever be made. The problem was corrupt officials, biased recruiters, uh, racist um, newspaper owners and the like. And if you could just let uh, computers do all the clinical uh, maths of society for us, then the world will be a lot more fair. The difficulty is that um, any kind of algorithm has to incorporate some kind of political or moral philosophy. And the difficulty we've had in the past is that many software engineers haven't realized that what they've been doing is in fact incorporating philosophies without realizing it. Now, they often have tended to prioritize things like optimization and efficiency and consistency over things like non-discrimination or social justice. And what we're seeing, I think, is the emergence of a new kind of political philosophy. I call it the computational ideology, which sees the whole of society as a data set, you and me as individual data points, and social justice as just a matter of optimization and efficiency. If we are allowed, uh, if we allow society to go down that route, and we embed that ideology into algorithms, then of course the world's not going to be fairer. Tom, but at the same you, time, uh, what algorithms allow us to can do... Just, it, Jamie, I, can I just ask Tom this, this question? No, yeah, I totally agree with almost everything um, Jamie's saying. I suppose I just want to say, firstly, that it is not as if... You know, when it's not as if humans don't make decisions based on the past. That's the only thing that's the only data that's available to us as well. And when Jamie says rightly that we shouldn't, you know, we should try and make an assessment of uh, over whether a child is going to do better than uh, their exam, their their mock exams suggest, or whether a a um, uh, prisoner is more likely to, you know, less likely to offend than perhaps the the algorithm spits out. The decisions, if they're made by humans, are based on the stuff that's in the past as well, plus any prejudices that are hanging around in the, in the human's head. So, I mean, you may, you may find that it's not as if humans are not racist, right, or not, or not biased. And so these, these um, uh, prejudices absolutely exist. And, and, the, and I, well, I will say the advantage of an, using an algorithm, if you, are, if you are not, as, again, Jamie rightly points out, if you're not blinded, if you're not sort of blindly going into it thinking these are, these are sort of objective truths, I mean, the Royal Statistical Society pointed out with the, with the um, A-levels algorithm, that there is that the uh, these are not politically neutral things. They are, you know, they are, you have the algorithm you make is a is is is, is how, how in, in, encodes various assumptions and biases which we'll have to be aware of. But if we do go into it with open eyes about that sort of thing, then we can then then you can you can reprogram an algorithm in a way that's much easier to do than to reprogram a human. You know, you, if, if, like there was the Amazon hiring algorithm that everyone got very upset about, rightly a, few, a couple of years ago, which. Um, uh, they plugged in all the hiring data from Amazon. They, I'm sure Jamie knows more about this than me, but this is my, my understanding of it. But the, um, uh, they plugged in all the hiring data from Amazon. They told it to hire, to send out new, to, to hire new people, or to sort of make suggestions for hiring. And they noticed that it was very sort of emphatically hiring white men. And this is not because the algorithm itself was somehow what well, was biased or racist, because the data it was trained on was racist. But or, but the the thing is, then they could see this and they could say, oh right, our our, our hiring practices in the past have been heavily favoring white men and you can change your algorithm or you can change your hiring practices in a way to to uh, sort of reflect that and improve that which is much harder to do when you're dealing with humans because these outcomes are less explicit you can't so so if you are willing to go to use the algorithms in a cautious careful way with human oversight to say look this isn't this is this this is spitting out a, a result that is not what we want. We need to tweak it. We need to adjust it. We need to work on fairness and social justice. Then it has the potential, and perhaps, perhaps I'm Pollyanna-ish here, but I, you know, it has the potential to be 
much more fair and avoid these really obvious but hard to get away with problems that humans are kind of biased. So here's a question. How do we know that it was the algorithm that was wrong and not the teacher predictions? How do we know that people were not wrong when they said, I was going to get an A and uh, the algorithm gave me a C? Maybe the algorithm was right and they were wrong. Jamie, isn't uh, the whole point of creating these algorithms that they'll be more correct? I mean, who would want to be uh, operated on by somebody using an algorithm or by a surgeon just using their knowledge? I'd pick the algorithm given the uh, the, the sort of uh, evidence we've got about which is correct. Well, so, sometimes for sure, Danny. I mean, for instance, you know, there, there are algorithms which are now reaching or even exceeding human capacity when it comes to things like diagnosing skin cancers and the like. Uh, I think the A-level results is a good example of one where there probably did have to be some kind of algorithm. And indeed, most exam grades, most years are subject to some kind of moderation, where even the results that are given to individual exam papers by exam moderators are themselves subject to tweaking if they appear to be above or below a particular curve. I think the issue here is that tying people's A-level results, not not just to their own personal previous performance, but to the performance of people like them in schools like them in the past uh, is problematic. And it's pro- it might not be problematic in every context, but it's problematic in the context of, a, of an examination, which is supposed to reward a child for work that they personally have been doing. We teach our kids that if you work hard, that, you know, you'll be rewarded. But actually, if you're simply told that because you ranked 10th in your class and you, and you would have been predicted an A, but previously the person who was 10th in your class at that school would have got a B, that you're going to get a B instead. It doesn't conform in this instance to social expectations about what an exam is. So the, the reason there's no easy answer to your question, Danny, is that exams, parole boards, credit, mortgages, whatever it is, each of these areas has their own set of norms of justice and set of expectations about what society believes is a right and a wrong and a fair and unfair outcome. And if you just say algorithms willy-nilly and allow the kind of private sector software generation world to come to, to come up with whatever formula they think best, then you shouldn't be surprised when um, when the results conflict with received norms and expectations about what justice is. And of course, I know that the Ofqual algorithm here wasn't generated in the private sector, but it also wasn't subject to any checks from the Royal Statistical Society, as Tom says. And to be honest, as we broach this brave new world of algorithmic regulation and algorithmic governance, the more eyes, the better. Yes, I, we've been uh, talking about A-levels, but of course, that isn't the only uh, issue. And you're very good, Jamie, on all the various issues where modelling and algorithms are going to take place. But we've got one right in front of us at the moment. Our coronavirus policy has been driven a lot by modelling. We were discussing schools going back. That obviously relates to uh, where we should regulate in order that the R rate doesn't go up. Um, Trying to work out what's going to happen with the R rate is partly modelling. Tom, you, at the beginning of this, warned people not to become uh, too harsh about models because all modelling is really difficult. Um, How do you feel the government's done in the modelling work that it's... uh, How do you feel it's it's progressed in the modelling work that it's done on coronavirus? Well, I mean, I feel like this is... I have a lot of sympathy for everyone involved at every level of this because it is it is like I don't know it's, it's like trying to fly fly an airplane blindfold or something. You, you're, you're, there's just so much uncertainty. There's less now than there was. We got much better data, 
and we narrowed down, you know, people weren't sure whether very early on, whether, you know, the disease killed one person in 20 or one person in a thousand. And we now know roughly it's probably, you know, more like the one in a hundred sort of area. And, but with, it, it, would, it was incredibly difficult early on to make, to get good data, to then get, work out good assumptions, to use that data around. I think, um, uh, I, I, I think it's very easy and I, there, there have been definite mistakes. I think that we, everyone can agree with that. Um, and I think the uh, mistakes in, have been, I, I would say, not erring on the side of caution enough, broadly speaking. And also, but I, I'm, I've been really wary of saying people have messed this up because I think even now there are reasonable disagreements to be had over whether or not, you know, over what the right thing was to do. And, and modelling uh, is just, you know, like we like we've said, it's saying all along, it is it is just it is essentially it is, it is an algorithm. You get you get this data and you plug it into a system and it spits out something else. Your algorithm will be uh, will have various assumptions embedded in it, which themselves can be uh, better or you know more more or less realistic. But the there there is absolutely at this point no right answer about any of it. So um, sorry to wrap up a slightly uh, wobbly point of view. I just wish I'm just extremely glad it's not me been making the decisions and I've been able to sit on the sidelines criticizing basically. As someone literate in this area though, when you listen to the press conferences and you hear people talk and you hear uh, Neil Ferguson talk, but you also hear the ministers talk, uh, Matt Hancock or Boris Johnson, do you feel you're confident in the hands of um, a government or an administration or a civil service literate in this sort of maths? Or do you feel that um, we've got a sort of system that is, um, you see that old phrase, an analogue system dealing with digital facts? Uh, so I think, when, uh, uh, just purely as a, speaking of me, uh, then yes, I, I've, I've felt when, I felt there's a, been a clear distinction when you're listening to people like Chris Whitty or, um, or Neil Ferguson or anyone who's been sort of uh, coming at it from a scientific angle who has been much more willing to talk about uncertainty. Because, I mean, the, the one thing that modelling and algorithms give you in, in this sort of instance is they give you a, a, a best estimate, but they also give you an uncertainty interval. So, you know, we, we expect, we think the R value for, you know, in this area is, between, is 0.85, but it could be between 0.95 and 0.75 or something like that, you know, as our 95% confidence interval. And I feel like it's, been, it's really important in dealing with this, Sort of situation where there is so much uncertainty, being able to express that uh, in sort of clear terms. Because I think my own, my own experience from writing about it a lot over the last six or seven months has been that people are actually really keen to be talked to like grown-ups and explained that this you know we this is stuff we don't know, this is stuff we don't can't be sure about, this is the uncertainty. And I have got I very much got that impression when you listen to people like Patrick Valance or Jenny Harries or anyone who's sort of willing to put forward an element of this is what we know and this is what we don't know. And I've much less sure i mean i don't want to sort of be too harsh again but when you speak when you hear the politicians talking about it they're much more keen to give certainty and give and give answers where where you say yes this is we are we are sure this is fine and i i feel like that i've been that has made me much more nervous because i feel there has been much more uh, there's much more uncertainty in all of these areas and i think the public is actually generally pretty good at understanding that and would be happier to be had it, have it explained to them like grown-ups rather than the sort of false reassurance. So Jamie Tom is um, quite um, confident that we're that we're beginning to get an understanding of risk. In your in your book in Future Politics, you you ask whether we're really 
aware of the kind of world that's coming at us, where we can do so much uh, with data, uh, and maybe we're no longer be in control really of what we're doing. Um, do you uh, have you looked at what's happened over coronavirus, over exams, and drawn confidence from the handling of risk, uh, the way that that public dialogue has developed, or has it made you more concerned? It's it, it's hard not to feel a little bit more concerned. I mean, there's so many there's so many layers. Yeah, I'm sorry. I think we've lost uh, Jamie there. But uh, Tom, I wanted to ask you a question um, also, uh, which was re- related a little bit to this, which was about super forecasting. So one of the things that um, that Dominic Cummings has been keen to do is to supplement uh, the priesthood uh, in the civil service with data-rich uh, individuals who can really get on top of uh, the future and forecasting. Uh, Jamie said that it was hard for us not to be a little bit more pessimistic about government's handling of it. That would sort of tend to reinforce this view that we need new people. What do you feel about this whole drive to get in people who are super forecasters? Is that just all baloney or is it? Is there something real in it? Oh, there's absolutely something real in it. It's, I, I, I know a few um, sort of through, uh, a few people who are, sort of, uh, are super forecasters and it's absolutely real. What, I, I don't know how much your listeners know about it, but the basic idea is... Um, uh, if you make a prediction about whether or not something will happen in the future, for instance, if I was to say, "Will you know, our, uh, will there be an extension to the European to the to the uh, to the to the transition period before Britain leaves uh, before the end of the year or something like that?" I would then say, uh, rather than simply saying yes or no, I would say I think it is seventy percent likely, and then I'd make that sort of prediction over hundreds of different predictions. Um, and if the things I said were 70% likely happened 70% of the time, and if the things I said were 40% likely happened 40% of the time and so on, then to the extent that that happens, then I am well calibrated. I'm making good predictions. And, you know, and super forecasters are just people who are really good at that. Um, and who are, you know, and they're, and the system that by which they're judged rewards them for being confident, saying 95% and being right, and then punishes them for saying 95% and being wrong and that sort of thing. And it is, it is very clear from years of data that there are some people who are really good at this, there are, that everyone can be trained to improve. There's a sort of, um, as a saying that uh, Phil Tetlock, I think, who was the guy who came up with all this, uh, said, which is, um, not every, everyone can learn to play the violin, but not everyone can play at Carnegie Hall. You know, that you can you can give people the basics for getting better at this stuff. The um, and it, I think you know it seems it seems obvious to me at least that this is useful stuff to have in and around governments, people who can sort of assess the uncertainty, the, the uncertainty around things, and to, who can say more accurately than most that you know the the, the economy will probably grow by between one and five points next year or whatever. You know, the um, this this strikes me as obviously useful stuff to have around. It is not magic. It is not um, sort of you know. It's, it, it's, and it's not certainly a lot of the time the uncertainty, uncertainty really is pretty irreducible. And they will say I am fifty five percent like sure this will happen, but there's a huge likelihood that it won't, and all that sort of stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I, th- I think I, I, I can't see any reason why you wouldn't want people who can make useful predictions and so on. The, the thing is, it does what it doesn't give you is any sort of moral decision making for you you know if you if you if it says this is likely to happen like this if or your condition you know conditional um question so you, if if we do x y is 70% likely to happen that 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 is that is all stuff that super forecasters can tell you but it doesn't tell you whether doing x will be a good thing or whether that the the trade offs involved would be worth it it is just a useful input and doesn't give doesn't let you short circuit 
the the sort of fundamentals of politics, which is trading off interests against each other and working out what is the right thing to do and all that sort of stuff. So, Tom, there was a uh, an advert for a super forecaster. Did you apply? <laughs> I um I did not. I. Uh, <laughs> Um, I, I, I try and understand this stuff, but I've made a few predictions. I'm just not very good at it because it's really hard. You know, it, it is really hard. You have to, there's, it is about sort of taking yourself outside of your own sort of bias and your own sort of, uh, the, the, the rush of all this information that's coming from the world. And you want to, you have to sort of step outside it and say, well, how many times do things like this happen? And so, so I, I, I've, I've made a few forecasts. I, I, I tried to tie myself to some, predictions early on in the uh the the covid crisis for instance and they, they, they're just pretty bad um so <laughs> okay. I, at the moment i'm leaving it to the experts thank you very much tom well uh, here's two predictions first of all we'll definitely be having tom chivers and jamie back again uh, the second prediction is that mark lobel is now about to read the latest news in sport that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times Radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box 2. Make sure you subscribe and review at the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, from me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.